This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 5th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The legal issues surrounding the classified documents and presidential records discovered at former President Trump's home are beginning to come into clearer focus. Cato's Patrick Eddington details some of the new information and why he believes the federal government was so interested in recovering those classified and other documents sooner rather than later. You call it uh, document gate. And uh, of course, this is in reference to documents that the FBI seized at the former President Trump's uh, residence and uh, that belong to, by all accounts, belong to the U.S. government in one fashion or another, depending on their the, the legal status and their or the protected secrecy status of, of the various documents. But they all belong to the U.S. government. So uh, to the extent that the president former president may or may not be accused of wrongdoing in a court of law at some point down the road, it's worth taking a moment to understand uh, where the laws came from that he may be accused of violating. Uh, So the Presidential Records Act, how did that come about? So we we have two statutes with respect to federal records that we need to kind of keep in focus here. You've mentioned the first Presidential Records Act from 1978, but the one that preceded that Um, was the Federal Records Act enacted in 1950, and that's the one that covers everything essentially in the executive branch, right? Um, That's what gives the Archivist of the United States and the National Archives the uh, authority to take custody of of records when an agency or department deems them to no longer be of day-to-day value. Um, They become historical. Uh, And there are all kinds of record schedules that the Archivist of the United States approves as they pertain to um, agency and department records. We get the Presidential Records Act in 1978 as a result of, at that point, former President Richard Nixon's attempts to destroy uh, the Watergate-related tapes and the like. And that particular intervention by Congress gave us the Presidential Records Act, which states unequivocally that presidential records that are so designated, official presidential records, are the property of the people of the United States. Now, that statute, you know, gives the president, the sitting president, a lot of discretion about what he or she can basically designate as a presidential record within certain uh, uh, frameworks of, of the statute itself. But it's generally been understood by every president since, until we got to Mr. Trump, that the maintenance of presidential records was an absolute necessity, not just for continuity purposes for incoming administrations, but for historical uh, and educational purposes for the public uh, at large. So the situation that Mr. Trump finds himself in uh, at this stage of the game is potentially being on the hook for multiple statutory violations. Um, It wouldn't just be the Presidential Records Act uh, that could come into play here, but in the specific search warrant that was executed uh, at Mar-a-Lago on on August 8th, 2022, it specifically stated, and I'm quoting here directly now, all physical documents and records constituting evidence, contraband, fruits of crime, or other items illegally possessed in violation of 18 U.S. Code Section 793E, that is the Espionage Act, Section uh, 2071, which involves the unlawful access to stored communications, and Section 1519, which involves the destruction, alteration, or falsification of records in federal investigations. So those are the three that were specifically cited by the Washington field office agent, um, you know, in the original search warrant, search warrant affidavit itself. 
Now, we also know on the basis of additional developments uh, in, the, in the course of the last couple of weeks, seems like there's a new one every day practically, that there are now some other uh, really serious statutes that Mr. Trump and his associates, and specifically his attorney who handled the documents on his behalf, may be on the hook for. Uh, and one of those is obstruction of justice, and the other is making false statements. Uh, and that's on the basis of a new affidavit that was unsealed in a different Trump-related case in the Southern District of Florida. This one actually brought by Mr. Trump himself, uh, in which case the, the former president was trying to get the federal judge to appoint a special master, demanding that the documents be returned and all the rest of this. And it's in actually in that particular DOJ response, Department of Justice response, to Mr. Trump that we learn a lot more facts, essentially, about the sequence of events and all the rest of that. But in a nutshell, that's essentially kind of the background of the PRA, the FRA, and essentially at the moment anyway, the potential legal liability that Mr. Trump is facing. Prior to 1978, when a president walked out of the White House and left, uh, what could he take with him? Pretty much anything. And I will tell you, as someone who's been doing an enormous amount of research for two books on domestic surveillance and, and political repression, when I went to the Library of Congress uh, to do research on some of our earlier presidents from, you know, Theodore Roosevelt up through basically Herbert Hoover, I was rather appalled to learn that Calvin Coolidge had literally destroyed every last bit of his presidential papers. So if you're trying to figure out what happened uh, what, what Calvin Coolidge knew about uh, what the FBI was up to, uh, you're out of luck. You're, you're just not going to find those there. And that was just considered, um, you know, to kind of be par for the course. Um, but other presidents, of course, did a better job of maintaining their records. But there wasn't an actual formal mandatory, if you will, statutory framework for doing that until the Presidential Records Act came along. And so after 1978, a president leaves the office and I, as I understood it, like you couldn't even keep gifts from foreign dignitaries that were given to the president. That's all archival or historical matter belonging to the U.S. government. It seemed it, it, at least tell me if I'm wrong. But after 1978, when you're you as the president leave office, you kind of leave with what you brought in. In large measure, that is true. But there is a section of the, of the Presidential Records Act that basically exempts things of a truly personal nature. So um, some folks have been raising this issue of President Clinton and the fact that he maintained some personal tapes in the form of a diary um, that, uh, that he basically sat down with uh, historian Taylor Branch to record, and that's how Taylor Branch was able to write his 2009 book, The Clinton Tapes. And so some folks have been pointing at that, but I, I don't think there's really any doubt that 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 particular set of tapes does fall into, you know, what uh, what the archivist in the United States would probably consider to be uh, a personal diary, if you will, in this case, a, an audio diary, for lack of a better phrase. But other than that, you're absolutely right um, that material should should revert to the people of the United States and the control of the archivist in the United States. And in the case of of this mountain of classified material um, that uh, that FBI agents finally managed to to scoop up. You know, that stuff belongs to the agencies and departments in question. And and what really I think has Mr. Trump, and especially Mr. Trump's attorney, uh, who was involved in in handing over allegedly all the documents, which they did not actually do in May of 2022, that individual signed a written statement um, stating definitively that that was it, nothing else was there, nothing else classified. 
And in this affidavit that was unsealed uh, on the 31st of August, or 30th of August, I believe, uh, in the Trump v. U.S. case, it was revealed by, by the Department of Justice that Mr. Trump's attorney actually prohibited FBI agents from looking at any other boxes that were uh, on the site at that time. And of course, you know, once FBI figured out that there was more material there, um, that clearly, um, you know, put Mr. Trump and his attorney and anybody else involved in those documents at Mar-a-Lago uh, in some real, real, real deep trouble. There were a lot of people, I mean, smart people, people th that uh, I have high regard for saying, uh, this is a fishing expedition. This is a this is a a hunt for uh, these records, and then I look at like the government's filing in uh, this investigation and see that there were there there appeared to have been several attempts to recover this material without further incident, and that where the risk of some sort of legal confrontation and adversarial perhaps in a court uh, event would have been minimized. Is that how you read they, the, the process here? They, they clearly, between the two of them, the National Archives and the Department of Justice made multiple efforts to try to get the material returned in a prompt and safe fashion. And they got to the point where they actually issued a grand jury subpoena, which is which is how we get that minimal document turnover, essentially, in June of 2022. And that it's after that that additional sources at this point unidentified, um, made it clear to the Bureau that there was more material there. So now we have false statements made essentially to the grand jury, what amounts to false statements to the grand jury. And all the rest of this uh, in the way of um, highly classified material, including information, of course, uh, on confidential human sources, uh, information provided by confidential human sources, and that is the most perishable kind of intelligence that you can possibly have. You know, if in, in the world of signals intelligence, the world of the National Security Agency, it's never a good thing when a particular communications channel is compromised. But there is at least the possibility of being able to go back and get access to another one uh, or recrack the code, if you will, um, on a different system. When a human source is terminated, that's it. You know, it, it's over. Um, and that's why this is so serious. Unpack that a little more. You're talking about spies. We are. That's, we are talking about foreign nationals who provide information to the Central Intelligence Agency, the Defense Intelligence Agency, um, other components of our government, with the expectation that their identities will be kept secret because if they are not, they will be minimally put in prison if not killed particularly if we're talking about a source in, let's say, Russia or China or North Korea or Iran or any number of countries in the Middle East, quite, <laughs> Southwest Asia, quite frankly. So this is, it doesn't get any more serious than this. You know, and I was at CIA when the whole Aldrich uh, James debacle unfolded. And it wasn't just one person he got killed. It was dozens of people that he got killed. And that's absolutely devastating you know, when that kind of thing happens. So, you know, this, and I take a backseat to no one as anybody who's listened to this podcast or read my material, I take a backseat to no one as a critic of my former employer, the Central Intelligence Agency. But there are absolutely some secrets that must be maintained. And the identity of confidential human sources, particularly in the intelligence context, is at the very top of that list. What would you consider 
uh, I mean, we don't really even have a real super clear idea of what's in these documents for good reason. Um, is there is there anything you can say with confidence about what might look what what might ultimately be a satisfactory conclusion to this issue? Well, I, I guess it depends on exactly what we are talking about here. If we're talking about a conclusion as far as Mr. Trump is concerned, then it, it seems to me, as, as our colleagues uh, uh, Wally Olson and uh, Clark Neely have, have said publicly, you know, that this process needs to run its course and, and, you know, justice absolutely needs to be served here. Um, I, I think, you know, the biggest concern that I have beyond, you know, what may have been compromised here, if anything, and there is a damage assessment being conducted right now by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. I think what concerns me about this whole case is whether or not you can actually find a jury of 12 people who would look at the evidence objectively and and be willing to convict or acquit, you know, on the basis of the evidence. And, and I think... I, I just don't envy the Attorney General of the United States right now because this is, it doesn't matter what he does, he's going to catch hell for it either way. If he walks away from a, from an Espionage Act charge because there really isn't evidence to support it, then I think uh, the president's supporters are going to say that it's much ado about nothing. That's not true, but they'll say it's a bunch of misplaced documents, nobody got killed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If he does go forward with an Espionage Act charge or, or let's say, the obstruction of justice and false statements and all the rest of that, then I would expect an absolute firestorm, you know, from Mr. Trump supporters. Um, so I, I just don't envy the Attorney General of the United States right now. I mean, it's a very difficult decision to have to make. The stakes are incredibly high. Um, but there's absolutely no question that as a country, we're paying the price for letting presidents get away with this stuff and for allowing presidents to accumulate the level of power that they have over the course of the last century. And, and to me, that's like the larger lesson that ought to be learned from all of this, that presidents, you know, should not have immunity from this kind of thing, that they should not be treated any differently than a member of the House or the Senate in terms of their potential culpability. And I'm talking about in office as well as out of office. Patrick Eddington is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Please give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.